in Mark chapter 11, verse 21, it says, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Today, Jesus tells Peter that he can throw a mountain into the sea. This is day 14. Welcome to the Journey Through Mark podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's word. Together, we'll discuss the context and meaning of each passage and how the book of Mark can help us understand more about who God is and the story he's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to Journey Through Mark, the daily podcast. We're on day 14 here once again with Brendan and Melissa. How's it going, guys? Good. Great. How are you? I'm good. It's sunny out today. The world is looking up. Hopefully it warms up. S- but you're stuck inside. I'm still stuck inside. Are you guys still stuck inside or? I am relegated to my basement right now. <laughs> Wow. I got two kids. One is napping, the three-year-old. One is three months old, and you don't know what he's going to do. So <laughs> hopefully uh, he stays quiet during this recording Brendan session. is hanging out with his sump pump and his yep. heater yes. down there. <laughs> I'm keeping them silent as well. Keeping you company. I have a beautiful view. It's so bright and sunshiny outside, but I am by myself. So that's not fun. Here's my question for today. What's an injustice that you just cannot stand for? And this doesn't have to be super serious. What's an injustice in the world that you're just done with? I am sick and tired of how much people have it against hint of lime Tostitos tortilla (laughs) chips. (laughs) Do people like voice their disapproval of that? Yes. And it's a love it or hate it type of thing. And I just don't get it. Maybe it's like the fake lime that people don't like. Like Chipotle has a little bit of real lime on there. Yeah, that's good. But the Tostitos, man, they put it over the top. And you just like all lime things or just the Tostitos? So I went grocery shopping yesterday and Rachel asked that I get stuff to bake for her and Hayden to just keep him occupied and things. And one of the things I got them to bake was a key lime pie for my birthday. Wait, so just to be clear, the injustice that you are upset about is the injustice acted upon yourself. You're just like it's tired not, of getting ridiculed it's not injustice for liking against myself. Of lime. It's injustice against the scientifically proven to be best tasting chips in the world. What are you talking about? Like, is there a study on this? What are you referencing? This is what I call anchorman science. Melissa, what about you? Yeah, so I'll keep it light as well. I hate when people throw their trash out their car window or a cigarette. Oh, yeah. That is an injustice to our world today. Well, it's just like lazy. I mean, just get a bag and put it in your car. And then when you have trash, just put your trash in that bag. It's not that hard, people. It's really not. And like you go to gas stations every like however long, just like save it all up and then toss it all when you get to the gas station. Exactly. There's so many better options than throwing it out the window. Yes. If you're throwing garbage out the window, stop it. You're doing it right now while listening to this (laughs) podcast. How dare you? That is an injustice I can get behind. So what about you, Tyler? What is an injustice that you feel very strongly about? So if you've ever gone like traveling and you've got like a beautiful like scenic overlook or like a national park or something, to Mm -hmm. me, the injustice is like when people have built their house there or like you have to pay admission to see nature. That's really frustrating to me. I think that things that are just naturally occurring in the world should probably have like a level of freeness to them. That's really my thing. Yeah, I can see that. Well, one thing that Jesus can't stand for is people selling things in the temple, or it seems like it. And also, he doesn't really want to stand for trees that don't have fruit on them, even if they're not in season. (laughs) Who knew Jesus was such a, you know, horticulturist that he expected it to be bearing fruit all the time. But anyways, to get into that, why don't you take us through our commentary for today, Brendan? Day 14, A Withering Fig Tree and Temple. 
Mark 11 introduces the third and final act of the book of Mark. Over the last few chapters, Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem. Now he finally enters Jerusalem. When he arrives, he does a couple of odd things. These actions come to us in the form of another Mark and Sandwich, a story within a story. The first half of the outer story tells us that on his way into Jerusalem, Jesus curses a fig tree when he sees that it has no fruit. Jesus says in Mark 11:14, "May no one ever eat fruit from you again." Later, in the second half of the story, Peter reports that the fig tree dried up just as Jesus said. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Read by itself, this story can make Jesus seem petty. Why was he so upset about this insignificant tree? But when we read it along with the inner story, this episode takes on symbolic significance. The story at the center tells how Jesus enters the temple, flips over money-changing stations, blocks the flow of merchandise, and drives out the buyers and sellers of sacrificial animals. Like the cursing of the fig tree, these actions can also seem erratic. However, Jesus' actions were intended to bring the operation of the temple to a standstill. Without the activities that he disrupts, daily sacrifices could not be funded, sacrificial animals could not be purchased, and sacrifices could not be offered. Therefore, Jesus wasn't having a random fit of rage. Jesus was deliberately and symbolically undermining the temple system and its corrupt leaders. Jesus' issue with the temple was that it no longer fulfilled its intended purposes, just as the fig tree had failed to produce fruit, its primary purpose. God intended for the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations, but fraudulent officials had made it a den of robbers. The outer story of the fig tree therefore symbolizes what would eventually happen to the temple. Like the fig tree, the temple would soon wither away, and Jesus would become the new temple through whom we can pray and have access to God. For day 14, we're reading Mark chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 12. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside on the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if any had fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, 
believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man in the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Alyssa, why don't you take us through our discussion questions for day 14? First question. In Mark 11:25, Jesus says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Who have you been holding a grudge against lately? Who do you need to forgive? Second question. In Mark 11:23, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. This is a bold statement. We all have mountains in our lives that we would like Jesus to move. What do you need to ask Jesus for today? So, Brendan, is Jesus telling Peter to throw a mountain into the sea? Is that what's happening here? He's asking him to pray if he wants a mountain thrown into the sea, I guess. Why would you want to throw a mountain into the sea? What's actually interesting, notice when he talks about this. This comes immediately after he's cursed this fig tree, after he's sort of symbolically cursed the temple. Now he's talking about a mountain. Well, the temple was built on a mountain. And in this whole section, what he does in the temple, he's symbolizing the destruction of the temple that's forthcoming. And yeah, he's talking about prayer and how we can have faith. And when we have faith in prayer, God can do great things. But he's also talking about, look, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it'll be done for them. And he's alluding to the fact that actually this mountain is going to be thrown into the heart of the sea, just as Jesus had, you might say, prayed or talked about, anticipated. 
So it's like a foreshadowing. Yep. So let's roll back a little bit. Sure. So this is like kind of the third act. Jesus has been traveling. He yep. finally gets to Jerusalem. And then like, has anybody even heard of him? He like rolls into Jerusalem, <laughs> which I've been to the old city. It's a decently sized place, but he just starts going and flipping tables. They're probably like, who's this crazy guy? For sure. Like, calls himself a rabbi. Is this normal? Have they even heard of Jesus at this point? So I guess we could back up all the way to Mark 3, where people from Jerusalem are coming to test Jesus up in Galilee. But you see this big thing happen right at the very beginning of the chapter that sort of sets this off. Remember yesterday's reading, he heals a guy who's blind in Jericho, right? Where was Jericho topographically? The very lowest part by yes. the Dead Sea. Downhill. Okay. Where does he end up here? He's on the Mount of Olives. So he goes from Jericho, the lowest place. He goes uphill 18 miles through the wilderness, through arid areas. We got pictures of this in the book. And he ends up at the top of Mount of Olives and he asks for a colt, right? Which I think is interesting because, you know, he's already walked uphill through the wilderness for 18 miles. Yeah, he's probably a pretty good hiker at this point. Yeah, he doesn't he d- need like a, a colt to ride. <laughs> exactly. But he asks for this when he gets to the top of Mount of Olives to go downhill one more time into the city of Jerusalem. This is all symbolic. It's him showing that he is the Messiah King. The book of Zechariah anticipated this, and this is common in Greco-Roman culture and, and Roman culture. Emperors would ride into town triumphantly, and that's what Jesus does. This is why we call this the triumphal procession. He comes to Jerusalem as king. He does this because he's on a cult, and he's claiming that he is king coming into the city. This is a very symbolic action. And a lot of people recognize him. The crowds are celebrating it. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people who are missing though are the temple leaders, which I think is interesting. Yeah. They're the only ones who don't welcome him. Then he ends well, they're up- probably in the temple selling some stuff. Like they've got <laughs> like sacrifices and <laughs> money exactly. changer. That's probably what they're doing. They're probably getting set up for yeah. the day in their little uh, farmer's market for the Lord. The farmer's market for the Lord. Yep, some figs. Uh, <laughs> and Brendan, this is yeah. what we consider Palm Sunday, right? This is Palm Sunday. So this is the Sunday before Easter, you might say. And so he's riding into town. This is what kings do. He's showing symbolically that he is king coming into his city and he's not welcomed. And this is a theme then that we see throughout the rest of today's reading. Tyler, you read about this vineyard where a son goes and he's not welcomed. He's actually killed. After this whole temple piece, it talked about how the religious leaders sought ways to kill him. They didn't welcome him. That's the theme throughout all of this. And so the people who should be welcoming him are actually rejecting him. Well, so like the people that should be welcoming him are the ones who reject him. But like for some of them, have they even heard of this guy? Is this like some rabbi from Galilee? That's really my question. Like, do they have any reason to like even know about this guy? Yeah, I mean, I think they know about him. I mean, I don't think he's like drawing headlines like some others might, but news is spread around the country about who this guy is. And he really captures their attention when he does this thing in the temple. So like, why does Jesus decide to go in and start tearing up the temple? I mean, my toddler has done similar things when he comes in and he's upset, (laughs) like throws shoes and throws stuff off tables. Yeah, that's just like living with toddlers. But why is Jesus acting like a toddler here? Two ways people have thought about this. Some people talk about this as though he's cleansing the temple, trying to reform it and make it what God had intended. So you have these people who are buying and selling and that's not appropriate in the temple. And so he's saying, don't do this. And then the temple can go on. The way I've come to read it more and more, just as I've studied this, is he's actually symbolically cursing it. He's destroying it because the things he does, they're preventing the temple from functioning the way it's supposed to. Like Mm -hmm. the stuff that people are selling, 
selling. This isn't just like necklaces and beads. And you know, it's not like just regular merchants who are selling whatever goods they have there. That's not what's going on here. These people are selling sacrificial animals. You know, at this time, you have Jews living all around the Greco-Roman world who are coming to Jerusalem, especially at this time. This is Passover time. And they're not bringing their animals with them, tens, hundreds, whatever of miles. They come and they buy animals there so that they can then offer them as sacrifices. Jesus, he prevents all that from happening. He flips over the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Doves are the animals that the poorest of the poor offered and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And the idea here is if it's just for a moment, he's stopping the temple in its tracks. He's saying, what you guys are trying to do, I'm actually stopping that. He's symbolically showing what's going to happen to this temple eventually. In two chapters in Mark 13, he's going to talk very specifically about how the temple is going to be destroyed. And he's already here announcing that he has come not just to reform it, but to actually announce its destruction. So just like as an aside here, yeah. somebody who's never read this before, and it's even good a refresher for all of us who have, what's the temple from? How did it get here? And what was its original purpose? Good question. This goes back to about 1000 BC when David becomes the first king in Jerusalem. He says, God, you've been traveling around in this tent. We want to build a temple for you. And a temple at its core is supposed to be a house for God. Throughout the ancient world, this is what people did. They created houses for God. Much like our churches today, right? Much like our churches today. The idea is that this is a place where gods could dwell and the God of Israel was no different. Even though we believe that he's the one true God, the only God, he also had a house. This is where he could be among the people. It's how the Israelites could have a relationship with him is the idea. And God affirmed this. He wanted to have a temple, be among his people. And he had David's son, Solomon, build this about 1000 BC. Fast forward about 400 years to 586 BC. The people of Judah, they commit a lot of sins. They prove to be faithless. So we talk about this vineyard here. In Isaiah 5, God talks about how Israel and Judah, he made to be like a vineyard. This is a parable in Isaiah 5. He expected grapes to grow. He wanted them to produce good fruit, but all they produced were sour grapes. They lived lives of injustice. They didn't take care of the poor. They're faithless people. And so God said, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to send you into exile. And once you've gone through that time of purging, I'm going to bring you back and you're going to be better because of it. And this is what happens. In 586 BC, he allows the Babylonians to come in to destroy the temple there in Jerusalem. And sure enough, the people of Judah are sent off to exile. They come back several decades later. And in 515 BC, they begin this process of rebuilding and restoring this temple. But this temple never had its glory that it had originally. Didn't ever match Mm -hmm. what it was when Solomon built it. And then around Jesus's time, just a little bit before it, this great king named Herod the Great. We call him a megalomaniac. He loved big buildings. In fact, we talked about mountains. He was a guy who literally moved mountains. He would take (laughs) the top of one hill and move it to another to build great fortresses for himself. And he built this temple. And I'm guessing it's not because he had like a lot of prayer. It's not like he was praying. No. That's how he moved mountains. He like just had a lot of people at his disposal that were moving mountains. Exactly. It was a demonstration of his power. And this is kind of what he does. In the first century, he 
restores, rebuilds the temple to something that's greater than it ever was or ever would be again, you might say. This was considered the greatest building in the world at that time by many people. It was actually a point of nationalistic pride, which I think is really important because Jesus, all throughout his ministry, he's confronting the nationalism of people who are expecting him to rise up as a military warrior to restore the kingdom of Israel. And he says, yeah, I'm going to be your Messiah, but the way I'm going to be a Messiah isn't through military might. It's through suffering. And not only that, I'm not just a king for Israel. I'm a king for the entire world. And so some of the things he's condemning here are actually some of the practices that began to take place in the temple system itself. The other thing I'd point out is that the priests who administered the sacrifices there, they weren't priests by birthright. They bought that right. They paid for the right to become priests. And the third thing I would point out is that it also was a place of segregation. The temple always had sort of certain limits that separated God from the people, but they added extra limitations that would prevent Gentiles, non-Jews from moving into certain parts of the temple, women from moving into certain parts of the temple. And so this is why he says things like, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? See, at this time, they made it a house of prayer for Jews. Gentiles could come, but there were certain limitations that prevented non-Jews from Uh coming in. So there are all these injustices that had come to dominate the temple system. And Jesus is announcing, this is going to pass away, and I'm going to create a new way that we can have access to God through me, through my body. Okay, so that makes sense. He doesn't like the temple. He likes to throw it into disarray. This is one of my favorite like Jesus moments. Yep. Just like of course. Transparency. <laughs> I'm a little bit too excited about it. But one thing I'm confused about, why does Jesus not like this fig tree? It's not like this fig tree is supposed to be producing fruit at this time of year, is it? That is an interesting note. I mean, the main point is he's doing something symbolic here. Again, it's not that he has something specifically against this fig tree. This is Jesus doing another parable. It's Jesus doing another symbolic action. I think what he's doing in the temple is symbolic. And what happens to this fig tree, which again, this story, it envelops, it surrounds the story of the temple action. He's symbolically cursing it because he's entering Jerusalem, seeing that Jerusalem, the people there whom God had planted there to be fruitful, to live in a certain way, they failed to produce the fruit that he expected. And so So Mm, that fig tree symbolized the people of Jerusalem. He cursed the fig tree, and now he was symbolically cursing the temple and the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Mm. So I'm just like connecting the dots here. This is a little bit confusing. And also I feel like I should put this disclaimer on. I feel like I'm kind of like down on the church as a whole. And it's not that I'm down on it. I'm just like trying to figure it out because it's hard to not see the comparisons here. Mm. Like, especially in this story of this is this place that was built with the intention of being the house of God. And then all of a sudden at some point it became not about that and a little bit corrupted and Mm. about things that are not what God is intending. And Jesus comes to turn the tables literally on (laughs) So here's the question, I guess, is like, how do we know when our church or our system on earth is not bearing fruit like this fig tree? Like, how do we know when it's time to change or adapt or get back to what God is actually intending? That is a good question, because I think sometimes in the church, we can get so caught up in traditions and the laws that we kind of forget that church is about people and it's about relationship and it's about loving others. And I'm kind of with you on that. I think when we start aligning ourselves with scripture and what God's word says, then we can come back to the heart of why we worship. We can come back to the heart of church. 
Yeah, and I think that there's nothing like necessarily inherently wrong with the way certain churches do things. Like everywhere from traditional churches to more contemporary or non-denominational churches, you've got like liturgy in there. It all is important as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. It feels like there's some separation of existing for the right reasons and then being about the wrong things, the things that God would be for and the things that God doesn't really care about. I guess I'm just curious, like, Brendan, how do you know when you're being about the things that God is about and when you're not being about the things that God is about? What are the signs? Let me just say how I think you begin to know. You have an intimate relationship with the entirety of Scripture. You spend time Mm -hmm. in things like the Book of Mark, and you get to know what is Jesus about? What are the things Jesus is for? You get into the letters of Paul. You read these things. You get to know what's the heart of God. What did God expect of the temple system? What did he expect of the tabernacle system? Look at the Book of Exodus. How are they supposed to live? Why did God want to be in a relationship with them? And as we look at the New Testament church, like what is it supposed to look like? And one of the things I guess I'd point out here is that I think our fault so often is in making the church a building. In Mark 13, the disciples, they're looking at this awesome building that Herod the Great built, that the religious leaders, political leaders were continuing to build. greatest building you said of the age. Greatest building of the age. And they're like, what magnificent stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, you see all this? Surely one stone is not going to stand on top of another. It's all going to be destroyed. They put their faith in a building. And I think it's so easy for us as American Christians to do similar things, to put our faith in buildings, to put our faith in things that aren't really the church. The church is the people. It's the body that confesses that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, that we welcome him as ruler of our lives. And the New Testament tells us that when we do that, when we confess that, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, but not just inside of us. He comes to live in and among us all all corporately. We are all sort of temples, you might say. So I think it starts with having an intimate familiarity with what scripture teaches about the heart of God. I also think it has to do with having open ears and eyes that see. That's like humility, right? Humility. And it's this sight and blindness thing we've been talking about throughout the whole book of Mark, this willingness to look for the blind spots in our lives, to look for the blind spots in our churches, and to be willing to hear the words of prophets. Jesus is like a prophet who's coming to town, who's announcing the imminent destruction of the temple. These are the same types of things that prophets in the Old Testament did, and people didn't listen to them. And the people this day didn't listen to Jesus. And what can set us apart as a church today is a willingness to hear those hard things. It doesn't mean those hard things are always right. We don't know for sure whether those who are speaking prophetically against us are exactly speaking the truth, but we can't be so out of touch and closed off that we can't hear those things and examine ourselves to see whether there's actually something wrong we might be doing. Yeah, I think what you said is true. Like this idea of hearing what these prophetic voices are saying, but also balancing that against, well, what does scripture say? And when they align, those are sort of things to pay attention to. Yep. And those are the areas that you should shift and change a little bit. Yeah, I think that even Jesus speaks to this in Mark 11, 25, when he says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. I mean, he's saying how important it is just to have community with one another. And as we think about the church like that, how much more important is it for us to forgive one another, be in community, and love each other as the church? 
And what I think is so interesting about that, again, like we talk about the destruction of the temple, how Jesus replaces the temple, the functions of the temple are no longer necessary because he becomes the ultimate sacrifice. But not only that, the temple is the place where forgiveness of sins happens. And Jesus mm. now says that actually you can offer forgiveness and God, your father can offer you forgiveness. And you don't need to go to this temple and offer sacrifices to have that. This yeah. is something that is sort of done away with. So it's another expression of why they would no longer need the temple. This whole idea is kind of our inspiration visually for the journey cover. Like you've got what seems like an establishment, but really if you expand out and look at the whole picture, it's almost just a small picture of what is actually going on. And Jesus is able to start to tear down these temple systems. It's only when you have somebody bold and you have somebody that's attuned to what God is actually doing, that you're able to start tearing some of these down and changing it because only somebody who has that power and authority I mean, that's what the Pharisees are asking this whole time. They're asking, where did you get this authority? Where did you get this power? Exactly. How can you do this? And it's interesting. It ends with this story of this parable of the vineyard. And he quotes this scripture. He says, haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone (laughs) the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Brendan, would they have known this scripture when he says this? Would they be like, well, yeah. And then what does it mean for them? Yeah, they would have known this scripture because actually think about what they said at the beginning of the previous chapter that we just read. Mark 11, when Jesus comes to town, what do the people say to him? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that comes from Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26. And in that same chapter, notice what it says in verse 22, just a few verses before. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They're quoting this psalm, this psalm that people often proclaimed at times like this and what people wanted to proclaim when the Messiah would come into town. This is a messianic type of psalm, you might say. But there's this line in there, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus now says, here's the thing that you see really fulfilled in my life about this psalm. I am like that stone. In fact, the word stone in Hebrew is the word Evan. This word son in Hebrew is Bane. It's the same letters, just with this one letter in front. And there's almost like this wordplay that's happening. The son is rejected the bane, just like the Evan, the stone has been rejected. And that's what this is all about, how Jesus is like this stone, this Evan that's been rejected. He is the bane, the son of God that's been rejected by people who confess his name, but don't see who he really is. And apparently it makes the Pharisees so mad that they're ready to kill him. Yeah, they understand exactly what he's doing and saying. And they understand that he's saying this in judgment against them. This is actually the first time they begin to see. That's the funny thing. They've misunderstood all his other parables. Now they understand a parable finally, and they recognize that it's about them. One, we're going to see in the coming days what that means for them and what their reaction is to this. But Mm -hmm. this isn't really a discussion question, but you can kind of go two ways. This is for people who, you know, do have an established understanding of church and God and faith and understand Jesus. They've read the scripture. You sort of have two reactions here that you can go. And this is where I want to kind of leave it. You have a reaction that you can either just completely reject the idea of what Jesus is bringing to you, or you can look at yourself and examine yourself and start trying to figure out, okay, how do I need to change to align with this? And we'll see what happens in the story when you pick the former and not the latter. But that starts tomorrow, Mm, not today. Stay tuned. Thanks for joining us for the Journey Through Mark podcast. If this is your first time, we're so glad you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org and share your journey experience on social media with the hashtag willowjourney. 
If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check out willowcreek.org. We'll see you tomorrow.